Chapter Eleven of East by West by Henry W. Lucy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. Chapter Eleven on the Railway Cars. An inconvenience inseparable from the distances run on American railways is the variation of time. Going west, one's watch is always slowing. Going east, it gains. A difficulty that might be grappled with if it stood alone, but there is superadded the uncertainty as to what time prevails in the connecting link of railway with which you are specially concerned. There was much disgust expressed in the British section of a Denver train at the discovery made on reference to the timetable. That the Denver and Rio Grande Railway delivered its passengers at Ogden a quarter of an hour after the Central Pacific train had gone on to San Francisco. On arriving at Ogden, it was found that, on the contrary, there was a good hour to spare for breakfast. The simple explanation being that at Ogden, San Francisco time is taken up, whereas we had been running on Denver time. I used to have a great pity for the people living at Pontarlier, the frontier town, where French time is exchanged for the Swiss. Between l'heure de Paris and l'heure de Berne, set forth on the same clock face by combination of red and black hands, it seemed that life could scarcely be worth living. But Pontarlier is not a patch on Ogden, where the waiting room at the railway station is crowded with clocks. Giving the various times upon which divers trains will run, it would not be difficult to drive a man mad, supposing he were called up in the morning by New York time, had his breakfast by Washington time, lunched at San Francisco time, had a cup of five o'clock tea by the Boston clock, dined at the Chicago hour, and went to bed at Laramie time. He would gratefully be buried either at St. Louis time or Omaha, whichever struck first. At Ogden, trains running west are ruled by San Francisco time, which is three hours two minutes slower than Washington time, three hours twenty-six minutes than Boston, three hours fourteen minutes than New York, two hours twenty minutes than Chicago, two hours nine minutes than St. Louis. One hour forty-six minutes than Omaha, one hour fourteen minutes than Laramie, and forty-two minutes slower than Ogden time. The public inconvenience arising from this penalty of geographical greatness has long occupied the attention of the railway managers. It is growing in pressure since the railway system is branching out and every little line has its local time. A characteristically bold scheme has been put forward to abolish the old world clock dial and have one worthy of the United States. Why should the computation of time stop at twelve o'clock when there are twenty-four hours in the day? Why not have thirteen o'clock and even twenty-four o'clock? These startling questions have been put before the intelligent public and have been received with much favour. If the French Republicans changed the names of the months and the course of years, why should not a greater and more stable republic have its own clock dial? The proposal was tempting, 
but it had to be resisted by reason of the same extension of longitude that is at the bottom of the whole difficulty. When it is twenty-four o'clock, Anglesey midnight at Boston, it would be about half-past eight in the evening in San Francisco. Must San Francisco be put to bed immediately after dinner? Or must Boston sit up till what would be half-past three in the morning? Whatever the Republic might decree, the sun would remain master of the situation, and the national sundial scheme, gravely put forward by the Pennsylvania Railway Company, had to be abandoned. A much more modest one is now practically approved by the railway managers, and will shortly come into operation. The breadth of the states will be divided into four parallels, starting from the east by New York time, by which in the first parallel all trains of whatever company will run. In the second parallel the trains will run on a system of time dated an hour later. A second hour will be accounted for in the third parallel, and at Ogden, San Francisco time, making up the balance, will prevail. The delay in American trains is truly continental in its proportions. In England it is regarded as a serious matter if a train on a main line is half an hour late. To lose an hour waiting for a train is an event the rarity of which is marked by much strong language on the part of the sufferers. Arriving at Salt Lake City from Denver, we were four hours late and starting next day from Ogden by the Central Pacific, we had to wait three hours and a half for the arrival of the Union Pacific from the east. From Ogden to San Francisco is over 800 miles, a run in which there are possibilities of making up the loss of time, more especially when the average speed is 20 miles an hour. On this journey it was done, and we reached San Francisco on time. But this is not always the case, as appears from the Denver journey quoted, the through passengers from the west missing their train, and being compelled to stop at Ogden all night. Slow running is not always an unmixed evil, as we learned on the Denver line. Approaching after midnight one of the stations, a switch which should have been closed was left open, and a serious accident made possible. Owing, however, to the slow pace, only the engine and the baggage car got off the line, and the passengers in the Pullman car slept on, unconscious of the danger averted. As compared with English trains, the American cars, with their open gangways and the possibilities of moving about, are vastly superior for the work they have to do. To travel a thousand miles at a stretch, cooped up in an English first-class carriage, would be intolerable. In the Pullman cars, a run of a thousand miles, travelling day and night, is a mere incident of the week, and you leave the cars as fresh as when you entered. One day we saw the sun rise over the Rocky Mountains, and watched it sink behind the grey, sandy plains that lie about Salt Lake City. A long journey, as ours accounted, but actually wearisome neither to body nor mind. This railway journey from Salida across the Rocky Mountains 
is perhaps the most beautiful in either world, new or old. At a quarter past four o'clock in the morning the train was due, but it was nearly five before it steamed out of the station and breasted the steep ascent of the Marshall Pass. The stars were still shining in the deep blue sky. In the east, breaking over a purple ridge of mountain, the dark blue was paling to pearl grey. Presently there was a faint tinge of colour, changing as we looked to sulphur, and on through grades of infinite beauty to gold and crimson. Then the sun shone clear over the mountain-tops, and hill and dale, field, stream and sky, took on a beauty that mocks description. After winding in and out round capes and over chasms, we came to one of the many canyons which make railway engineering possible over these great divides. Imagine a narrow gorge with towering sides of rock, a tiny river rushing through, sometimes emerald green where the sunlight caught it in quiet depths, but oftener a mass of foam and spray leaping over grey rocks in its haste to reach the plain. The mountains on either side rise sheer up a clear thousand feet of bare rock, grey and brown and red. A turn in the canyon shows hills of softer shape, with here and there veins of brushwood of brilliant crimson. There hang over the stream graceful trees unknown in England, with delicate foliage like maidenhair fern of every shade of colour from deepest gold to daintiest green. Through the gorge, winding at every few yards, the train glides along at a pleasant driving pace, giving time to enjoy all the beauty spread abroad. Nearly always we have the river, for which and the track there is just room enough in the canyon. All through the long morning the crisp mountain air is full of sunshine, and even when the sun goes down, and the moon and the stars come out over the plains, there is a deep blue sky framing the ever-varying picture. At midnight on the far horizon towards which we were speeding, a new and startling light flamed forth. It was too low to be a constellation, and out of the way of the aurora borealis. As we drew nearer, it spread in extent, and the smoke about it began to form a cloud. It looked like a burning city, but it was only a stubble field, and this was one of the peaceful processes of Western agriculture. In this happy land, straw is not worth the trouble of reaping. The heads of corn are cut off close, and the straw left standing. When it is thoroughly dried, a match is applied, the straw burned up, and the ground is ready for the plough. It is a matter of great regret to travellers that Mr. Baedeker rests on his laurels earned in Europe, and forbears to include the United States in his familiar series of handbooks. Here is a new world to conquer, worthy of his genius. There are handbooks in the United States, one professing to be on the model of Baedeker, but they are curiously useless. 
I had one known here as the Tourist's Guide to the United States and Canada, and in England as the Englishman's Guide. Published at seven and sixpence in England, it costs ten and sixpence in New York, its place of manufacture. For some days, covering thousands of miles of travel, it possessed a strange fascination for me, being the premier book in the English tongue as containing the least amount of information in proportion to its bulk. But enjoyment of that kind soon palls, and on rejoining my trunks at Chicago, I put the volume away at the bottom of the largest one. The baggage arrangements are, in their inception, among the principal conveniences of American travel. The voyager from New York to San Francisco can, without trouble or expense, check his baggage forward from town to town, picking it up where he pleases. Sometimes, it is true, he picks it up in several pieces, and many a family arriving at San Francisco have had their opinion of the convenience of the American system sorely modified as they stood by the wreck of their baggage. An American railway porter treats each individual piece of baggage as if he owed it a personal grudge. Easy as it may seem to take the lightest and frailest boxes as the basis of a pile, and then bring down upon them the sharp, iron-bound edges of a Saratoga trunk, it requires a good deal of skill and practice so to deal with whole carloads of luggage. Yet I have never seen at any station along four thousand miles of railway a single instance of failure. An English railway porter handles baggage with comparative kindliness, for it represents to him sixpence or a shilling. Tipping not being the practice in America, the railway porter has nothing to look for or to hope for, and accordingly takes it out of the baggage. This same absence of tips is doubtless responsible for the brusqueness, frequently reaching the stage of downright rudeness, which marks the manner of all with whom travellers have to deal at American railway stations. Ask a porter or depot superintendent, if you can find one, from which of the confusing lines a particular train is to start. How? he growls turning upon you a frowning, indignant face, as if he thought he had heard you ask him to lend you five shillings. You repeat the question, and he, turning on his heel, pitches over his shoulder a monosyllabic reply which you may or may not catch. In any case, it will be all you'll get. This is not a reference to an exceptional experience. It is an unvarnished description of at least twenty approaches politely made to railway officials between New York and San Francisco. At only one town did I meet with an employé whose manner answered in any degree to the courtesy and willingness to oblige of a corresponding official at an English railway station. The exception, I gratefully and admiringly record it, was the stationmaster at Kansas City. The tip system against which English railway directors rigorously enforce penalties has its abuses, but sometimes, wandering forlornly in search of my train at a large railway junction, 
I have thought tenderly of the English railway porter, with his right hand dropped at his side and conveniently hooked, lest for adventure the obliged passenger should want to drop a shilling in it. Perhaps in England we are too much in the habit of relying upon the friendly and officious porter, who not only sees your baggage into the van, but conducts you to a carriage, and leaves you safely and comfortably seated. But if such intervention is desirable at an English station, with its well-defined platform, its warning-bell, and its hosts of attendants, it seems absolutely indispensable in an American depot pronounced depot which is simply a wilderness of rails level with waiting-rooms instead of a train being drawn up to a raised platform as in england it is halted in various positions on the broad level unguarded highway oftenest either in the middle or at the far side no attempt is made to see that passengers who have paid for their tickets start with the train all aboard the conductor confidentially observes to himself, and thereupon, without warning, whistle, or sound of bell, the train glides out of the station with whatever proportion of passengers may chance to be seated at the moment, or in the frantic rush which follows may succeed in jumping on. "'Don't get yourself left,' a phenomenally friendly conductor said to me at Ellis, as I stood on the platform two seconds before the train moved on. That way of putting it exactly represents the situation. If a train over an hour or two late pulls up at a roadside station, and presently moving off without a warning note leaves a passenger behind, he has got himself left. This brusqueness in railway places is a reflection of the national manner as met with in the cars and on steamboats. How, or what's that, is the invariable response made to a question, however softly put by a stranger on the cars. It is uttered in a peculiarly sharp, snappish tone, while your interlocutor is looking up and down from hat to boots with suspicious inquiring glance. I do not think anything unpleasant is meant by this. The American, when you know him, is among the most friendly and hospitable of human beings, but his manner on the cars or in the streets is apt to convey a false impression to the foreigner. It sometimes happens, even after the unpromising conversational start of how or what's that, that a fellow companion on a car becomes very friendly and sometimes even entertaining. This is most frequently the case on long journeys, where, having observed your habits and formed an opinion of your character, the conclusion is arrived at that you don't mean any particular harm. On the journey between Ogden and San Francisco, I made the acquaintance of an early settler in California. He was a lawyer, and full of reminiscences of the early administration of law in the state. It seems to have worked consistently so as to give the odd chance to the criminal. Three escapes are worth recording. The first happened at Esmeralda, a town near the borders of Nevada and California. A man was being tried for murder, 
a very bad case. Esmeralda being at the time understood to be in California, the judge, sheriffs, and jury were all from that state. The case for the prosecution was concluded, there was literally no defence, and the fate of the prisoner seemed sealed. The judge was about to address the jury, when the official surveyors, who had been working in the neighbourhood for some days, hurriedly arrived in the court, and announced that Esmeralda was in Nevada. "'Then, gentlemen,' said the judge, rising and reaching for his hat, "'I don't know that I've any business here.' "'I reckon, judge, that we've none either,' said the jury, beginning to disperse. "'I guess I'm in the wrong box, too,' said the prisoner, and out he went with the crowd, and was not seen in the neighbourhood any more. In the second case, the prisoner got off by an oversight of the judge. This happened at Sacramento. The man had been caught red-handed in the act of murder, but in accordance with the possibilities of American law, had been bailed out. At the sitting of the court, the man surrendered, and the responsibility of his bondsman there ended. This was the preliminary inquiry, and what the judge had to decide was whether the man should be held to answer the charge before a jury, a process akin to our magisterial inquiry. After hearing the evidence, the judge held the prisoner to answer, but omitted the next formula of delivering him into the custody of the sheriff. It was, accordingly, the business of only a single person to look after the prisoner. That person was himself, and judging he would be better outside, he walked out, and has not since been captured. The third case is less nearly connected with legal formula. A sheriff had, after a hot chase, caught a prisoner charged with shooting a fellow practitioner at the bar of an hotel. As there was some talk of rescue, the sheriff, a determined fellow, spared no precaution. He had the prisoner bound and carried into a substantial log hut. Arming himself to the teeth, he determined to keep watch himself through the night. He barricaded the door, and for greater safety slept across it, placing his prisoner in the corner remotest from the door. "'I guess,' he said as he lay down, "'if they take the boy they'll have to stride over my body.' At daybreak he was awakened by a cold draught, and looking round saw that he was the sole occupant of the hut. The prisoner's friends had raised one corner of the hut with a screw-jack. The prisoner had rolled himself out, and was already well across the border. End of chapter 11